I guess, I guess the question for me first is sort of like, when and how did you decide that you weren't planting a church? Well, it's sort of a complicated question because, I mean, it, it was a journey, right? It's October 17th, 2019. I'm sitting in a downtown cafe speaking to two participants in a research project. And in that journey, that began with the, with the thought that we would plant something that looked traditionally churched, only to just to come to the conclusion we weren't going to plant anything that looked traditionally churched, only to discover that we've planted a church <laughs> that doesn't look like church. Same as a pastor, as you've probably figured out, pastors who start new churches are sometimes called church planters. That's why he and I are both using that word. I mean, it was definitely at the end of the first year we sat and thought about what, what year did he say, no, I don't think it's going to look like a traditional, or it's not, you're not going to plant a church. The he that Sam mentioned is the regional church authority in their denomination, sort of their boss. It may have been even later than that. Maybe more like a couple years in. That second voice is Hannah, also a pastor. Hannah and Sam had come to this West Coast metropolitan area more than five years earlier. They are somewhat peculiar church planters. Yeah, I was a couple years in, and we had come to him and said, we don't think we can collect a traditional congregation because most of our mentors are people of not, no faith or a nominal faith. Sam just mentioned mentors, and that's the first big hint about why the organization they did plant is, in his words, a church that doesn't look like a church. Sam and Hannah used to lead a more typical congregation in a different coastal city. And through some of that church's outreach work, they started to learn a lot about their state's foster care system. Here's Sam telling the story of their organization's founding to a group of new volunteers. I call this group Tapestry, though that's not its real name. We'll get into this later, but almost all the proper nouns in this dissertation are pseudonyms. I made this recording just two days after our chat in that noisy coffee shop at a training Sam and Hannah offer each month to begin incorporating new volunteers. The co-directors are sitting at the head of a conference table at a Tapestry partner agency's headquarters. Sam tells them that as Hannah learned more about the foster system, she came to him in shock about what she was finding. For example, about one in five foster youth become instantly homeless when they turn 18, and only a handful are gainfully employed by the age of 24. So they decided to take action, but were brought up short again when they started researching how. And uh, so we, we were, we're both uh, clergy, and we started looking for ways for the, our church to get plugged into um, being a support, and, and really thought that would mean writing a check to an organization. And we, we stuck with our, you know, what we call our denomination and uh, couldn't find anywhere to plug in and, and, and felt more and more that we wanted to do more than just than write a check. We wanted to, to be involved somehow and, and, and to, uh, to be as much of a support as we could. As I listened to this story for what was now the third time, I noticed both similarities and differences to other church planting narratives. For example, Sam has just said, in a typically understated way, that they had heard a call from God. 
Sam and Hannah couldn't believe some of what they were learning about the statistically likely experiences and outcomes for people in foster care. Their religious impulse to accompany and care for marginalized and vulnerable people, well, that voice started speaking. It grew louder and louder until it changed their lives in incredibly significant ways. And we're invited by a family foundation to look at starting something. What we heard over and over again was the need for mentors. And in our own research, uh, learned that something that we all sort of intuitively know but doesn't get named very often, that everybody needs uh, someone who loves them. And if you can have the presence of a caring adult in your life for just one hour a week, the trajectory of your life improves. What we're going to share with you today uh, is that concept of community, uh, a team of mentors, uh, building community around uh, a youth and for one hour a week, and that bringing that care and love and concern and compassion uh, to that young person, we believe, makes all the difference uh, in, in their, their life. Now, I'm a pastor like Sam and Hannah. In fact, Hannah and I went to seminary together. But I'm also an educational media researcher. I study how telling stories and making media weaves people together. This podcast and the heavily annotated script I'm reading from, it's part of my dissertation. I've been hanging out with Tapestry for close to three years now, asking questions, taking notes, making recordings, saving emails, and sometimes being welcomed into the lives of those mentor teams to invite them to share stories and make meaning. Along the way, the COVID-19 pandemic set in, which shook up my research process and many of Tapestry's own ways of being together. But the adaptations that followed, they've been instructive too. During my extended immersion, I've learned at least as much about forming community as I did in three years of seminary. And the community I've studied and kind of joined doesn't look like the ones Hannah, Sam, and I were trained to lead. Not at first, anyway. This is a story for people interested in stories. In the broadest sense, I hope it can be a story for people interested in the future of American religion and spirituality. Tapestry is flourishing at a time when so many communities, religious and otherwise, are deflating and floundering. It's always been important to me that my dissertation means something to my colleagues in religious leadership. I want to both challenge and inspire them with what I've learned about what makes tapestry tick. More specifically, I set out to understand the role storytelling itself currently plays in tapestry and to explore the ways the organization might expand on those practices and incorporate methods from the digital storytelling movement. These professional motivations underscore that the project is also inevitably, a story about me. It's a story about the competing priorities I try to balance as I participate in the life of this organization, as a researcher, a storyteller, and a minister. Each of the four main episodes has a two-act structure. Those acts are sandwiched between a cold open, the kind of introductory segment I'm finishing up right now, and a coda, intended to summarize each episode and bring the big ideas together. 
And we need to divide the main narrative up still further, which podcasting experts insist is essential to holding listeners' attention. So I include a couple breaks after each of the main acts. These will help to connect the show to existing scholarship and give us additional tools for understanding the unfolding story. In this first episode, Act 1 is a brief audio autobiography to give you more context for what I'm up to here. Act 2 is a deeper introduction to the organization. We'll explore the scene that first confirmed for me that my colleagues and the network they're building are up to something pretty special. So welcome, dear listener. I'm really glad you're here. This is Becoming Tapestry, a dissertation podcast. Chapter 1. No group, only group formation. Act 1. Why we're here. We started things off in this episode in the middle of the action. Five years into Tapestry's story, ten months into my research. That's a common move in storytelling of all sorts, and one that documentary podcasters especially love. Hopefully by now I've got you a bit intrigued. Hannah and Sam are two of the central characters in this story, and I find them endlessly fascinating. You may be wondering how I came to partner with them for my research. That means telling you a little more about me. In academic circles, we say that this information positions the researcher. Me being honest about my perspective helps you and me evaluate my credibility. We have to be able to assess my claims about what I notice and how I interpret it. So, as I said, I'm a pastor, but I have a somewhat unusual backstory of my own. When I graduated from seminary, I was hired to be the digital missioner for the school's Teaching and Learning Resource Center. My first job was to bring our work online. Our center had always curated resources and trained leaders for Christian education. So if you've ever heard a story about a Sunday school teacher, chances are that person got some training from a center like ours. Anyway, in the past, this work meant curating physical resources like printed curriculum and hosting in-person events like Sunday school teacher trainings. When I was hired in 2012, we knew the work would increasingly shift to writing blog posts, recording YouTube videos, and convening online and hybrid models of professional development. But the other part of my job was thinking about how technology was actually changing religious leadership itself. As we practiced our way into being a resource center that could thrive on the internet, we slowly gathered a network of colleagues learning how to lead churches that could thrive on the internet. Ministers talk a lot about reading their congregations and their surrounding communities, And what we found in this text, as it were, was a social landscape increasingly shaped by the new media ecology. If you don't know how to podcast, I know someone who will show you how to podcast. Um, If you recognize the speaker's voice, you won't be surprised to hear that this moment was pretty much my proudest professional achievement. And the reason why I love podcasting so much is... um, 
this deep intimacy that I am able to have with my listener. I've been a TV reporter, I've been a radio broadcaster, but being a podcast host has made me feel close to my audience in a way that I have never felt before, and I think I wanna delve into that a little bit today as well. Um, so as Kyle said, what we do is it's a tech show about being human, but to me, it's really about telling stories. That's Manoush Samarodi. She was then the host of a WNYC technology podcast called Note to Self. You may know her now as the current host of NPR's TED Radio Hour. Samarodi agreed to speak to the 2016 gathering of the eFormation Learning Community, the network of technology-curious church leaders I'd led the assembly of over the last four years. She gave a really media-rich talk about the many ways that our technology is changing us. But she also talked a lot about how she grows her audience by sort of forming them into a community, learning how to claim their power in a digital world. Her favorite way to do this was by soliciting voice memos from listeners as we participated in little projects and challenges. Her show kicked off a shift in my thinking about media making. Increasingly, I recognized it as a radically collaborative endeavor, a team sport, and not just the team making the show in the studio. Anyway, this moment on stage with Manoush was also one of my last in that job. By now, I was actually living in New York City as the seminary's first telecommuting employee, My wife's first pastor job had brought us to New York the year before, and the change in scenery had prompted some soul-searching for me. About 10 weeks after running my final e-formation conference, I walked into the School of Education at Columbia University. It was my first semester as a full-time doctoral student in educational media. I wanted to get out of my church leader bubble and engage with more fresh ideas about what it means to make meaning by making media. What I found at Columbia was a community of teachers and researchers steeped in current theory, connected across many different communities of practice, and boldly committed to trying new things. I didn't know a lot about my new advisor, educational anthropologist Dr. Lalitha Vasudevan. I knew the research group she co-directed was called the Media and Social Change Lab, or Mask Lab. And I knew what intrigued her about taking on a techie pastor as an advisee was my interest in participatory, media-based storytelling. MaskLab is a hub for multimodal and digital scholarship that explores the relationship between media and our changing society. We support, curate, and create media intended to spark dialogue and social change and the development of pedagogy that uses media to foster civic engagement. Helping launch the MassLab podcast got me hooked on exploring scholarly ideas in audio stories. Sometimes we produced interviews with research partners that explored important themes and challenges in the work. Other times we summarized and unpacked the substance of more traditionally disseminated research projects in what we hoped was a more accessible way. The project was a joy, and I learned a lot about both educational research and media production. But I sometimes wondered if it was the best use of a bunch of grad students' time. We live in an academic system that rewards people who write things, books, journal articles, and at least once in a scholar's career, a dissertation. 
But that was also the most exciting part. Our little corner of the academic world was asking some questions that resist this status quo. And in this pursuit, we had some excellent role models. I thought I would start with what for me is maybe one of the driving questions um, in my own, at least, intellectual pursuits. And it's a version of um, the question of what actually doesn't count as scholarship. This is Dr. John Jackson, Jr., dean of the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. This clip is from his Sachs lecture at Teachers College, which was called What Scholarship Looks and Sounds Like. What forms of legitimate intellectual activity do and do not get understood in the context of what we've been calling at Penn at least, multimodal research. And, and this question of what counts and what doesn't as intellectual activity, as forms of scholarship, are important not just, I think, for academics in higher ed or for people at, at TC who are trying to understand the changing terrain of education, the contemporary moment. I'm going to come back to Jackson's specific arguments in episode three. For now, let me just say that he started his talk with the story of his career as a researcher and a filmmaker. When he was a grad student at Columbia, he wrote traditional kinds of anthropology, but he also made movies, at first literally in secret. It was a substantive part of his intellectual inquiry but lots of people told him that his academic colleagues wouldn't take him seriously if he focused too much on film as his scholarly medium. He did it anyway, thank God. And toward the end of his lecture's introduction, my ears perked up when Dean Jackson said this. One of the things that's make, made me maybe proudest of the, the 10 years we've spent trying to work on this at Penn is that in a, in a sea shift, um, from what I experienced, experienced as a graduate student um, over five years ago now, um, one of our PhD students here in the Annenberg School actually was the first student in the history of the University of Pennsylvania to graduate with an all-film, all-visual dissertation. Not for the first time, I was getting excited by the challenge and the opportunity of making my whole dissertation a podcast. Could I really make an all-audio presentation of the audio-rich engagements I was having with my participants? It seemed to make sense, given that a big part of what I was going to be doing was analyzing all that audio. I have to admit, I have resisted this path as much as I've followed it. It's energizing, but it's also scary. I've edited hundreds of hours of audio in my career, and it is painfully slow work. Like, it's the one thing I do even more slowly than writing. And as you've probably already figured out, I am not a voice actor, and I have not done a lot of script writing for audio. It's a totally different medium, and I've had to learn how to write very differently. Sometimes successfully, sometimes not. Still, I tried producing a pilot episode about my dissertation's pilot study. I'll have more to say about that later on. And it received a pretty good reception at an important education conference at Penn. And most importantly, when my commitment wavered in the course of presenting my dissertation proposal, one of my committee members called me out. What I, was, what I want to hear more about is the podcasting element. Mm. 
I was expecting it to be a proposal more because I know it's so close to your heart. This is Dr. Joanna Litterat. She's the associate director of MassClab and another important thought partner for me in the idea of podcasting as research. What's the relationship between digital storytelling and podcasting? Yeah. That's another major contribution you could be making. Podcasting is very now. Mm-hmm. Podcasting can kind of circumvent a lot of the ethical issues mm-hmm. that you bring up. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a committee that is very yeah. open and encouraging. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I think you should take advantage yeah. of this yeah. because I think you can make a really important contribution mm-hmm. and do something that you love doing. So the idea to produce my dissertation as a podcast evolved slowly through many conversations on mic and off. It was seeded by several years of wondering about how the new media ecology is changing religious leadership, and it was watered by several more years of asking about how the possibilities of multimodal scholarship and media making were actually changing how we might do academic research. So now that I've brought you up to speed on who I am and how that identity shaped the form of this project, I need to tell you a bit more about one of its major themes. There's a moment from the Mask Lab podcast that will help me do that. In a lot of ways, it set my research agenda in religious education and social change. It also gave me an occasion to reconnect with another media pro I had once brought to the E-Formation conference. I'm Sarah Lefton, and I founded and am now the creative director of BIMBOM. We used to be called Godcast. We're an organization in Oakland, California that animates... The Hebrew Bible. The summer after my first year at Teachers College, Sarah and I did some teaching together at a writer's workshop for pastors and rabbis. She helped me see the connections between, on the one hand, what I was learning in my classes on communication theory, and on the other hand, the day-to-day craft of using media tools to engage people with their faith. Time operates differently on YouTube than it does in a magazine. If you're going to capture somebody, into watching your video, it has to be done in the first three seconds. The three seconds is the time at which people are most likely to bounce off of your video because they've decided that you're boring or you're not getting to the subject they thought you were getting to. And that's not the way people have traditionally written, right? Very often you get hundreds of words to, you know, bring someone in through a beautiful metaphor or to tell a story from your life before you get to the point. You can't do that on YouTube. And I don't know that that's for the better of humanity. (laughs) It's wagging us, you know? The medium is wagging us. Thankfully, the medium of podcasting wags me a little differently because I can't tell you what I had for lunch in three seconds. Still, let me take Sarah's good advice and cut to the chase. Bimbom was such a hit because it met people where they are, in their homes, on their devices, in classrooms full of people accustomed to media-rich approaches to learning. And while I can't speak for Sarah in her Jewish context— I can tell you that mainline Protestant Christians like me have recently committed to meeting people where they are for one especially prominent reason. We're uncomfortably aware of where people are not. At an accelerating pace, Americans are opting out of traditional religious affiliation and religious practices. And they're opting out from churches like mine the fastest. So now that you know a little more about me, why I chose to make a podcast for my dissertation, and some of the questions in religion and religious education that matter to me, let me take a break and introduce you 
to the nuns. Several years ago, all this new data came out identifying this big leap in people who identified as religiously unaffiliated, people who answered none when asked with what religion they identified or were affiliated. Big drop. This episode of Becoming Tapestry is made possible by the work of spirituality researcher Elizabeth Drescher. This isn't an advertisement. It's a brief engagement with her book. In academic lingo, a literature review. A great thing about audio scholarship is you can hear authors' big ideas in their own words and their own voices. So for, you know, most of the previous 50 or 60 years, about maybe 7 to 9 percent of the U.S. population identified as religiously unaffiliated. And um, in these early studies, that jumped up to about 15%. And people are like, what the what? Shut the door on that. That can't be, right? This is Drescher speaking to the Silicon Valley chapter of the American Humanist Association in 2018. And so people argued with the data. Um, Religious people uh, tended to say, it's not a thing. Don't worry about it. They'll get married. They'll have kids. They'll come back. No. That wasn't happening. Non-religious people tended to say, what? We knew, (laughs) right? We knew. And maybe there's more. Um, And that, that proved to be true. Yes, it did. Around the time Drescher was giving this talk, Pew was conducting another round of surveys that would put the number at 26%, which means this group that isn't a group is about the same size as evangelicals and as Catholics in the U.S. Still, the changes might not mean what you'd first assume. So we've seen religious affiliation um, grow substantially. Probably not, I'm going to suggest, because people are becoming less religious, but because they're articulating a certain sense of uh, of their, what we would call their spirituality more broadly in ways that no longer are packaged um, in religious containers. This is the heart of Drescher's message in her 2016 book, Choosing Our Religion. Drawing on original and public survey data and extensive interviews, she shows that it's the traditional trappings of organized religion that most nuns, that's N-O-N-E-S, reject or simply ignore. No labels except no labels is Drescher's catchy slogan. Many people who answer none for their religious affiliation still pray, still sometimes attend religious services, still explore questions of meaning and purpose. But they're not especially interested in religious leaders or communities' sanction of their choices. What we're finding now is that when people talk about things that are spiritually meaningful or religiously significant to them, they're talking about things that happen within the realm of human interactive experience that are sensate, that are relational, they're about how people connect to others, they're about what it feels like, what it tastes like, what it smells like. Here's the other big finding from Drescher's research. Their priorities aren't actually that different from people with more traditional religious affiliation. 
People like me who check with gusto the box for a traditional denomination on those surveys, she calls us sums. Get it? Nuns and sums? No religious affiliation and some affiliation. Well, it turns out that nuns and sums have a lot in common. The practices that people saw as spiritually significant between nuns and sums, the affiliated and the non-affiliated, were pretty consistently the same. Uh, enjoying time with family, spending time with family, spending time with friends, uh, sharing and preparing food, spending time with pets and other animals, were the same for both groups. The things that are conventionally measured by Pew and Aris and Gallup and the General Social Survey, uh, attending worship, uh, reading sacred texts, uh, and praying. Uh, only prayer uh, came, made it to the top of the list. The other two, bottom of the list, attending worship, reading sacred texts. Bottom of the list for both groups. So what does all this have to do with tapestry? Why is this ad that's not an ad relevant to our story? Well, for starters, most members of Tapestry are nuns. Remember Sam's story from up top? Most of our mentors are people of not, no faith or a nominal faith. One thing I learned about Tapestry right away is that, intentionally or not, Hannah and Sam have chosen exactly the right approach for swimming with rather than against the growing current that Drescher is describing. They've built a church that isn't labeled a church. It's made up of some sums, but mostly nuns. And it focuses on spiritual practices rather than religious beliefs. The practices and the life of the community together are the sources of meaning that guide their work and identity. Before I continue, let me say that there is, of course, a legitimate critique of this approach. Many of my colleagues would say that prevailing demographic trends shouldn't dictate how religious leaders prioritize their mission. If anything, they would say, we need to double down on the traditionally religious side of things. Isn't focusing less on beliefs and less on practices like worship attendance and Bible reading, the stuff that actually brings people to church and to synagogues and to mosques, isn't that exactly why those communities are shrinking in the first place? Well, maybe, but that almost certainly isn't the whole picture. In many different ways in which we can measure these things, People are just less connected with other people. It turns out faith communities aren't the only groups in decline. So are, well, basically all of them. In civic activities, within their own family, in terms of their um, ordinary everyday life. This episode is also made possible by the work of political scientist Robert Putnam. After this one, I'll stop saying so, but just remember, <laughs> This different music means lit review, not advertisement, okay? Cool. This is Putnam speaking with journalist Bill Crystal in early 2016. So the so, argument wasn't so much a psychological one as a sociological one, if that's the right word. No, that's right. That in fact there is less community, not just that people that's right. vaguely felt well, somehow. Well, people do feel it. Uh -huh. And what the book says, you're right. They knew why they hadn't. They were busy. They couldn't do all that other stuff. But they also felt a little guilty that they weren't doing it. And now along comes this Harvard professor and says, actually, it's not you. It's all of us. We're all disconnecting from one another. 
The book Putnam is talking about is Bowling Alone, which he published in 2000. That's before the internet was ubiquitous, he hastens to add. So you can't blame the core problem on kids these days with their phones and their TikToks and whatnot, which we are often tempted to do. Okay, so what's the deal with the title, Bowling Alone? Well, although more Americans are bowling than ever, actually more Americans bowl and vote, um, bowling in leagues, bowling in teams, is off by about, oh, 70 or 80% now from the, from the peaks. This book is full of graphs of those peaks. That is, of the rising and then falling prevalence of 20th century community activities. And yes, they all look like a hill rising steeply on one side, representing the years immediately after World War II, and falling gradually on the other side, representing the declining connection since the end of the baby boom. Politics and civics, workplace connections, socializing, volunteering, honesty and trust, all the graphs look basically the same. That includes the religion graph, which is important because perhaps as many as half of all Americans' memberships can be traced back in some way to a faith community. And people who belong to religious groups are much more likely to belong to other groups as well. Putnam says that what each picture shows is the rise and fall of social capital in the United States, the value of our reciprocal social connectedness. I think Putnam's big-picture empirical view is instructive for leaders of religious communities and for youth-serving organizations like Tapestry. What we've lost has made a big difference for American society, at least that's what Putnam says, and his follow-up work on how these changes have impacted children is pretty relevant to Tapestry's whole project. When working-class kids in my era were growing up, we were surrounded by lots of other caring adults outside the family, um, you know, preachers or Sunday school teachers or coaches or uh, other adults, and they were all looking out for us, but that, that sort of social connectedness in the wider community has also collapsed, and, and it's, uh, that's especially bad for these working-class kids who lack that, that support that working-class kids used to have. As the old hymn goes, Blessed be the ties that bind. Community connectedness has tremendous social value, especially for the most vulnerable members of those communities. So let's step back for another moment. We can think of Drescher's work as a kind of special case within Putnam's broader social picture. Religious disaffiliation looks a lot like other trends in how Americans are relating or rather not relating, with institutions and with each other. Putnam has a whole chapter on the religious angle. Now, it's possible that the causes of religious decline are entirely separate. Maybe the graphs of religious participation are connected to completely different dynamics than participation in civil or political life or bowling leagues. That seems very unlikely to me and I think also to Putnam. Yes, social trends are complex. Yes, there are specific religious reasons that some people leave or become relatively indifferent to faith communities. But I think it's unwise for my colleagues and I to try to address the challenges of religious disconnection purely through retooling or doubling down on our religious offerings. 
problems of community and connection will need solutions aimed at fostering community and connection. And religion is only a part of what binds religious communities together. Of course, none of this is an either-or proposition. I admire and learn a lot from Christian leaders who are sort of doubling down on the most ancient practices and, yes, beliefs. Still, my research and this story comes at our current religious and social moment kind of from the opposite end of the spectrum. From the first time Hannah told me about what she and Sam were doing, I've been fascinated and impressed by their laser focus on the community aspects of their organization. I think it's both faithful and savvy for them to treat the religious aspects of their work in a really flexible way, to be guided by it, but not to make it the focus of what their group is doing together. If all that sounds a little vague, then allow me to put some meat on the bones of this idea. Let's return to that conference room and explore the moment I became convinced I could write a religious education dissertation while embedded in a church that doesn't look like a church. It's time to hear the tapestry initiation story. Act two, Godly Play, the remix. So we want to start with this because this is kind of zooming out to the big picture um, and those guiding principles that will be framing your work as a volunteer. So I wanted to start with this, which is really a double symbol. Hannah holds up a hand-sized circular disc and begins to describe it. You can see all the objects in the story at becomingtapestry.net slash figure one. You're probably familiar with the yin and yang symbol of balance. And that's superimposed over that is a picture of a labyrinth. Some people describe a labyrinth as a maze, but it's really not a maze. You're kind of following this path that has been laid out. And then in the middle, there's this open space. And we really like to think of our time together as holding that space where you can be um, safe and open together. And then I think equally important is when you're getting ready to walk back out of the labyrinth to be just as intentional about what you want to carry back with you from that space back into your everyday life. So Hannah has begun the presentation with a symbol combining imagery from two very different religious and philosophical traditions. She's also framed Tapestry's work as both a spiritual practice and a strategy for managing the emotional energy of weekly mentoring. Okay, on to the next object. So no young person chooses to be in foster care. It's something that we'll talk about more as we move ahead this morning, but it can be a really dark and a scary time. And so you will see this symbol of the black trash bag in the stories we hear today and know more about that symbolism. The guiding principles themselves are displayed as single words written in block letters on little tent signs she places amid the objects. She just started to set the first one out and then remembered she had another object to place first. It's a palm-sized white box from which she removes what looks like an egg. Most youth who are in care, foster care, feel like they are 
boxed in and trapped. And one reaction will probably be that for the rest of their lives, they're really testing boundaries like all young people do, but trying to figure out where they are safe um, and where those limits are. And especially when they've been separated from their families and things and places and people that they love, they often feel that the things in their life that are most precious have been lost or broken. Turns out it was a hollow egg shell, now in pieces on the trash bag. I'll add that Hannah is a quiet, steady person of small build, not the sort I expect to start dramatically smashing things. The first guiding principle of Raid is that of hope. Okay, here comes that first cardstock sign. We really believe and hope that you do too, that you can be a channel of hope to your youth. And if there's any one thing that you're showing up with in a week that you, you can bring that with you. We don't expect you to always be a bottomless well of hope, um, but there are things in your life that you can draw on that are bigger than yourself um, and, and be a channel of that and just be that little, little spark in showing up and bringing that to them every week. This first principle of tapestry introduces the spiritual dimension of this community. It's a nod to the mysteries of human resilience and its connection to this elusive phenomenon called hope. Hannah promises a journey of meaning and transformation for both the youth and the mentors. And the message here is, you have what you need. There's a lot more to Hannah's presentation, including three other guiding principles, presence, recreation slash recreation, and communion. You can hear about all of them in the bonus episode that follows this one in the feed. The first time I heard Hannah tell this story, she said at this point, you'll help provide hope through your relationship and personal spirituality. There's that flexible approach to the faith stuff that I keep talking about. But ironically, by this point in the story, the first time I heard it, what struck me more was their creative use of a very particular religious practice. Tapestry may be a church that doesn't look like a church, but the form of this guiding principles story is directly out of the modern Sunday school playbook. Religious educators will probably recognize in it the hallmark style of a godly play story. Episcopal priest Jerome Berryman developed godly play as an embodied, experiential approach to teaching faith. We tell stories from the Hebrew scriptures, from the New Testament, and stories about the way the community gathers to make meaning in worship. It's based on Montessori principles, and so there are beautiful manipulatives that have been developed to support the telling of the stories. This is Cheryl Miner, who directs the publishing unit of the Godly Play Foundation. She's another alum of Hannah's and my seminary and also holds a PhD in psychology. She wrote her dissertation about the spiritual impact of godly play. Research indicates that children have an innate sense of the presence of God even before they have the language to talk about it. In godly play, we seek to give them that language through story so that they can deepen their experience of God through wonder and play. Hannah tells the story of Tapestry's guiding principles through a kind of adapted godly play story. 
This playful invitation to reflection may not have a lot of explicitly religious content, but it is very much concerned with describing how this community gathers to make meaning. And part of Hannah's objective is to give volunteers the language to begin to be a part of the community. In other words, the story serves as an important part of a day-long initiation ritual. Sitting in that conference room watching Hannah tell the story, I marveled at the rich layers of remix at work in this organization. Here's a non-church planter telling a non-godly play story with mostly non-religious volunteers. And her purpose is to both nurture those volunteers' spirituality and to equip them for what is, without a doubt, Sam and Hannah's religious mission. This is one of those moments you long for as a researcher and a storyteller. Here I was watching this stream of data and narrative unfolding around me and practically screaming out that something interesting and important was happening. Throughout this study, I have been energized and guided by the memory of that first experience. I sat there watching a some-style ritual that is a fairly traditional religious education practice adapted to a non-majority audience. That is a group of people who don't usually find themselves uh, participating in religious settings. But I still had a big problem, or at least I thought I did. Tapestry is sort of a church. It's sort of a nonprofit. It's definitely a community of some sort. But as we'll see, even that part is confusing because sometimes the community is two or three mentors sitting with a young person in a park or a coffee shop. And then other times it's much larger gatherings, sometimes just of mentors, sometimes with mentors and their youth all gathered together. So I found myself wondering, how the hell am I going to understand this group if I can't even describe what kind of group it is? And then a preeminent scholar of groups taught me that I was asking the wrong question. For me, the notion of network is of use whenever action is to be redistributed. This episode is also made possible by French social theorist Bruno Latour. In my view, his work holds key insights to help us understand tapestry and the central challenge religious groups are facing today. Take any object. At first, it looks contained into itself with well-delineated edges and limits. Then something happened, a strike, an accident, a catastrophe, and suddenly you discover a swarm of entities that seem to have been there all along, but were not visible before, and that appear in retrospect necessary for its sustenance. Here, Latour is speaking to a seminar audience of network technologists at USC's School of Communication. His field is science and technology studies, so he's especially interested in how people, processes, materials, and ideas are all interconnected. But don't get too caught up in the tech aspect of this. Latour's big idea is called Actor Network Theory, or ANT, and it applies just as well when the network connections are analog. So one scholar building on many other scholars' ideas is a kind of actor network. 
So is a team of construction workers building a lecture hall according to an architect's blueprints. Latour's actor network theory says it's a mistake to separate aggregate data about a group from the individual data about members of that group. And I think that kind of makes sense, right? We rail about this all the time in our everyday lives. Like when a pollster on the news speaks as if they have intimate and specific knowledge of my beliefs and decisions because I fit into a particular demographic category. Demographics aren't destiny, as the expression goes. Latour would agree. In his view, that constant explanatory leaping from the macro to the micro is a major problem for the rigor of social theory. And so he advocates for what he calls a sociology of associations. He wants researchers to focus on the careful tracing of the concrete ways human and non-human actors behave. He wants us to trace out those paths of interconnection. So Latour says, don't go and try to make a bunch of generalizations about members of a particular, let's say, religious denomination. Instead, stick very close to the members, members you can observe, members that you can start to make a kind of paper trail for, he says. Trace their dealings with each other and then recognize groups only when we can see the groups and describe the connections that make them a group. I listened to hours of Latour's talks, but I couldn't find an audio clip of him actually saying the phrase that encapsulates this principle. So I pulled it straight from his book and I made it the title of this chapter. No group, only group formation. In other words, Every individual is part of a matrix whose line and columns are made of the others as well. Every individual is part of a matrix, like from math class, whose lines and columns are made up of the others as well. Groups don't have clean, obvious boundaries. Groups hang together if, and only if, the other people who make up those lines and columns in the matrix are acting in a way that is connected and is doing some kind of common work. That's what being a group means. So what makes a group recognizable is not aggregate statistics about its members, but the practices that allow the group to solidify those connections across time. The practices help the group keep working in common for more than just a fleeting moment. No group only group formation. You're being formed together by doing the group stuff. Coda. Tapestry is the weaving. Okay, so I said Latour's ideas solve a key conceptual problem for this study. That's true. But I believe the importance of his A&T insight about groups and practices goes well beyond the framing of my study. It speaks to the big picture of religious leadership, of any kind of leadership. Remember, I found Latour as I was struggling with some basic questions about tapestry. What kind of group is it? A church? An outreach or service ministry of a regional collective of churches? A nonprofit led by religious leaders and funded by various religious and non-religious people and entities? How do I know which literature to consult as I try to understand it? How do you know whether to believe my various interpretations of the data I collect? Like a tall French Yoda at the podium in Tweed, Latour replies, 
There is no group. Don't fall into the trap of assuming that classifying people automatically tells you something about how they relate. Just trace the associations, he says, and write an account of them. Help us see how meaning and influence and regard and objects and action all circulate through this particular network of connections. Help us see how all that action weaves the participants together. That's group formation. My research-based presence with tapestry, my hanging out, as my advisor calls it, it's put me in the position to trace connections, to watch the weaving together, to pay attention to the practices of belonging that make this community possible. Okay, so those practices at tapestry are connected to this larger point I'm trying to make with Latour's help. No group, only group formation, holds the key to why tapestry is succeeding as a kind of small-batch spiritual startup. Church plants of all kinds are forced to reckon with a reality that established congregations too easily forget. Your community is only as strong as your ability to recruit and incorporate new members. Community practices do important stabilizing work, but in order to do that, the group has to keep practicing them. So the leaders and the members need to keep teaching these practices to new people and keep modeling their ongoing use. And Tapestry's unique mission puts an even finer point on this issue. Instability is a central part of the lives of foster youth. It's also a pretty constant theme in the lives of the young adult tech workers who mostly make up the group's core of mentors. I spoke with one team reckoning with the fallout of losing touch entirely with their mentee due to instability at home. I traced the ongoing saga of a long-serving mentor's process of deciding to leave the area, and I heard about similar deliberations and missteps for a handful of other transitioning mentors. And of course, I saw the COVID-19 pandemic throw a monkey wrench into all manner of tapestry practices and policies regarding team outings and relationships. So here's the point. Tapestry understands in a really powerful way something that every organization needs to understand. Being tapestry requires a constant focus on becoming tapestry. I'm convinced that group formation is one of the principal functions of religious education within faith and faith-adjacent communities. I'll say more about what I mean by faith-adjacent in the next episode. So that brings us to my first research question and the topic that this podcast will turn to next. That is, Tapestry's group formation practices. I want to look at those practices in more detail, and I want to ask what they might tell us about the future of religious leadership. What can churches and nonprofits and schools and other groups learn about this organization, this group that has grown so fast and had such an impact despite their very challenging mission? Tune in next time to find out. Congratulations, and thank you. You've made it to the end of episode one. If you're a church colleague still skeptical about whether Tapestry's project and this whole dissertation has anything to do with religious faith, trust me that I have a lot more to say about that. And trust me too, 
please, if you're an academic colleague and expected to hear a whole lot more about things like methodology and theoretical frameworks, remember what Sarah Lefton said earlier. The medium is wagging us. This is a storytelling podcast, so we have to launch the narrative before we can get too epistemological. But whatever brought you here, I'm grateful you're giving this strange experiment a chance. Stay tuned after the credits for a preview of episode two. Becoming Tapestry is an ethnographic podcast submitted in partial fulfillment of the requirements for the degree of Doctor of Education at Teachers College, Columbia University. Special thanks to Lalitha Vasudevan, Joanna Literat, Dietra Price-Dennis, Joe Rena Ferry, Katie Newhouse, Manoush Semarodi, Sarah Lefton, John Jackson Jr., the whole Mask Lab crew, the Cook Memorial Public Library, where I'm recording this, and especially to Sam, Hannah, and everyone at Tapestry who participated in my study. Our theme music is Intimate Moment by MFYM and licensed for use on this podcast via gemendo.com. Our lit review music is Cloud Launching by Little Glass Men, published under a Creative Commons attribution license at freemusicarchive.org. To read my annotated episode script and reference list, or to explore a mountain of ethnographic data and analytic artifacts, visit becomingtapestry.net. Next time on Becoming Tapestry, we meet Team Z. We just like went out for coffee and like got ice cream and sushi and like it was more just like a fun friend thing like going out having fun than like uh sitting down talk about your feelings or whatever it's it's, it, it was more like relaxed and less i don't know less of like a session